At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them to John chapter 8 as we are continuing our series, The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. We're ending the tail end of that series. we got just a couple more weeks here, but we're talking today about forgiveness. Forgiveness is something hard to do, isn't it? Forgiveness can honestly be a hard thing. Like, it can be something that, that we may not want to do. Some, I don't think anybody's running out to say, man, I want to forgive people for all the wrong they do to me. How many of you kids in here want to forgive your brother for what, they're do, what they do or sister? Yeah, right? You want to, right? We're called to forgive, right? But forgiveness can be a hard thing. Forgiveness can actually be a struggle at times. Sometimes like we need forgiveness. Sometimes we have to extend forgiveness and give it. Man, but when we're on the other side of that, when we need it, it's hard. And it's even hard when we give it. It's even hard when you have to ask of your eight-year-old daughter of it, right? I was reminded of this even this week of how many times I've had to Ask my kids for forgiveness because I've done something I shouldn't or yelled at them in a way or whatever. But forgiveness is hard. A couple uh, years ago, or maybe it was a couple months ago, I'm not sure, um, but I was driving. And um, how many of you guys get that little reminder in the mail that says, renew your tabs around your birthday time, right? Everybody usually gets them, right? Well, I had gotten mine, and uh, for whatever reason, I lost, forgot uh, that it was there, and, um, you know, I came and it went, and uh, I was driving. Um, I think it might have been illegally, I don't know, Um, but I was driving, and, uh, you know, I I had one of those moments where I'm driving, and I look in my rearview mirror, and I'm coming through Oxford, and I see a police officer behind my car, and I was like, oh, whoa, where did he come from, right? And you have that moment where you're like, am I doing everything right? Am I, am I driving straight? Uh, am, I, am I like going too fast? Like what's going on in this moment? And, and then it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, I don't have my tabs. Like if you're a police officer in here, I'm sorry. But I'm like, oh my word, I don't have my tabs. Like hopefully I live on a dirt road. Maybe my license plate is dirty enough that he can't see them. You know, and and like, I I don't wash my car usually, so I'm like, okay, this is perfect. He might not see him, and then he's getting closer and closer, and and I feel like that's wrong. They should not tailgate you, right? (laughs) They're putting fear into you, and so I'm literally like sweating bullets, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord, please don't let me get pulled over. Please, Lord, don't let me get pulled over, and then all of a sudden, I open my eyes. Well, maybe, but um, I look in my mirror, and I see he turns. And I was like, oh, thank you, Lord. I've been saved. Mercy has fallen. Grace has come. 
forgiveness, all of the above, right? Man, it's, it's like a relief was lifted off of me. Like, oh, I got to get home as fast as I can. I got to get tabs on my car, right? But it feels good when, when you actually have someone who forgives, and maybe he didn't forgive me, maybe he didn't see it, I don't know, but it feels good when you actually have something like that and you're carrying that weight and you're like released of it, right? It feels good. And then yesterday I was reminded, I'm driving down 53, coming back from my daughter's soccer game, and I'm going down 53, obeying the speed limit, doing all that I should, and here comes out of nowhere a motorcycle doing about 100 mile an hour, weaves between two cars, flies up and around me, and then I look in my mirror, and here comes another car doing 100 mile an hour, and he weaves around, and then another car comes up, and he can't get around, so he uses the shoulder in the gravel and doing, I'm not lying, 100, flies by this guy and keeps going, and I'm like, oh Lord, please be a cop up there to get them. I'm thinking in my mind, like, should I call 911, Lord? Like, is it right? Like, that, they deserve justice. Like, somebody should make them pay for their sin. And I'm hoping and praying that I'm driving and I'm going to see a cop that's pulled them over. And I'm like, man, this is going to be good, right? Or maybe even some of you kids. Maybe your mom and dad, you've done something wrong, and your mom and dad have been like, you know what, I'm going to give you mercy and grace. But then 10 minutes later, you're like, hey, my brother did this or my sister did this. You need to punish them. It happens in my household all the time. But the thing is, is it's funny, but as humans, we want mercy, grace, forgiveness when we've done something wrong, right? We want those things. But as humans, we also go to the other side of it when somebody's wronged us. We want them to have justice. We want them to pay for what they've done. What we'll see from our text today is the only person that perfectly balances forgiveness and justice is Jesus. Over the past several weeks, we've been working through the series, The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, as we're uh, learning about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And we're doing that through the lens of the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds where it's not part of the Scripture, again, but it's actually a, a, a creed that they wrote that is about the Scripture, helping us understand what the fundamentals or the, the foundation of the belief in God is or the belief in the Christian faith, right? And as you see on the screen there, we've worked through all of these different lines, and now we're at the end here where it says, "...the forgiveness of sins." And we're using this creed as kind of like a guide, as, as like a, a lens into the scriptures, right? And so we're on this today where we are talking about believing in the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to learn from our passage today that Jesus forgives sins. But before we dive into our text, we have to address a potential challenge that presents itself in our passage today. If you look in your Bibles at John chapter 8 and you open them, um, and I don't know if it says this in the tablet or the phones, but if you actually open your Bible, it will have in the footnotes right above verse 1, it says this, that the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Now, why does it say that? This is uh, the challenge because according to the textual evidence of the earliest manuscripts of the gospel of John, do not include this passage. Now we could get into 
all kinds of uh, textual criticism of, of uh, biblical translations, but we're not going to get into that today. But what, I want to read for you one thing by Pastor Ray Ortland. He gives us four good reasons for the church to be blessed by the teaching of this passage. He says this, Though not all the early manuscripts included this passage, the majority of the manuscripts of John do include it. And then almost all biblical scholars believe that this account is authentic and actually happened. This account reads like Jesus. It's in step with Jesus' conduct and interaction with religious leaders and sinners in other passages in the New Testament. And then the theology of this passage is the story of the New Testament, that Jesus forgives sinners. So it's very possible that this was not in the original version of the Gospel of John, but was added sometime later. And it's, not, it's got a, a, an incredible message for us today of forgiveness that we'll see. So in today's passage, um, we see that, well, that Jesus just got done with the feast and he goes to the Mount of Olives. And this is potentially his home where, where he actually, we know this place as the place where he ascended into heaven, right? And so he goes to the Mount of Olives and then after that he wakes up the next morning and he goes back to the temple to teach. And that's where we find him today where Jesus encounters a woman caught in adultery, being accused of adultery. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus forgives sins. So as we look at this passage today, let's ask the question, what does forgiveness of sins look like? What does that forgiveness of sins look like? First, we'll see that before forgiveness can be experienced, we must be aware of our guilt. We have to be aware of our guilt, right? Kids, before you actually can receive forgiveness from your parents, you actually have to understand that you're guilty and you did something wrong, right? We have to be aware of that. So we understand that forgiveness requires an awareness of guilt. So if we look in verse 2 through 6, it says this. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded uh, us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And what do we see that Jesus does here? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. Now, let's, let's set the stage here. Let's look at the setting in which this is happening. Jesus here, he's, he's gone back to the temple, and it says that all people came to him, that, that all these people came to him to sit and listen to him, teach and hear him. And where this is taking place is key because the temple was where the Sanhedrin met, right? This is where the Sanhedrin met. And the Sanhedrin, this is important, the Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel, their role was to judge in all matters of law and righteousness. So essentially, this was like a courtroom where somebody was coming to be judged. Now, let's look at the scribes and Pharisees. It says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed, him in, or placed her in the midst. Now, these scribes and Pharisees here are significant also because of who they are, right? 
The scribes were like members of the party of Pharisees. They were like groupies. They were lawyers, theologians, catechists, jurists, and so on. So they were like part of the Pharisees, but they weren't part of the Pharisees. They just kind of tagged along. They were part of this group that were, they were going with. And then we look at the Pharisees. They were well known for being strict and keeping the law and knew it very well. They were experts in religious matters and were known in the, go- uh, in the gospel for always keeping an eye on Jesus. They were, they were always trying to catch Jesus in doing something wrong. They were kind of a pain in the rear, right? They were constantly trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong. They were, they were trying to prod him and get him to do something wrong. And all of this makes sense because there was a legal proceeding that was about to happen here. There was something here, a trial if you want, that was about to happen here. And so they come in, they push their way to the front, they interrupt Jesus' teaching, and and they come in, they bring this woman who's been caught in the act and accused of adultery. And it says they placed her in the midst. They put her before Jesus. Why? They were about to test Jesus. They, They put her before Jesus because they were about to test Jesus, they wanted to try and get him to do something here. It says, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Have you ever been tested by somebody? Have you ever been tricked? Somebody ever tried to get you to do wrong? I know growing up in a home of four boys, and even my youngest uh, sister, she was the youngest, but having four boys, we constantly tested each other. We constantly were trying to get each other to do something wrong so that we could watch them get punished. You guys didn't do that? Sorry. That's just what we did. We constantly tried each other, tested each other, tricked each other all the time. And they wanted to test him. They wanted to get him to do something that they could charge him for. See, according to the law of Moses in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, the punishment for committing adultery was stoning both partners caught in the act of adultery. One writer puts it this way, if Jesus agreed to stone the woman, he would incur distrust of the sinners he came to save as well as break the Roman law. But a refusal to stone her would... would uh, make him vulnerable to the accusations that he treated the law of Moses lightly. See, they make it very clear here. They make it crystal clear the decision that they want made. They make it very clear by saying this. They say, Moses commanded us. Again, they're going back to the law. They knew the law very well, and they're going back to this law, and they say, Moses commanded us. It's a, a very... Uh, forceful expectation that they want Jesus to do this. They wanted her dead. They wanted Jesus to stone her so that she could die. And so Jesus has to make a decision here. And the thing is, this whole scenario is a setup. According to rabbinical law, there had to be two to three witnesses that actually were eyewitnesses that saw the act that had happened, right? Right? And so there had to be two to three witnesses. And so my thing is, is where is her partner? Where, where's her partner in crime? Where's the man? Why didn't they bring him too? 
Was he in the crowd? Was he present? Why wasn't the man present? See, the woman wasn't actually the one on trial here. Jesus was. They weren't actually trying the woman here. They were actually trying Jesus. They wanted to see how he would react to this. How does he respond? And then we see Jesus' response. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Imagine this. You're trying to get an answer out of Jesus. And you're asking him. You're prodding. You're trying to catch him in this. And he bends down and he starts doodling in the sand. He starts writing on the ground, writing in the dirt. And, and imagine what they were thinking in that moment, like going, what's happening right now? Instead of answering them, he bends down and writes in the sand. And the thing is, is what was Jesus actually writing? It doesn't say. It's not clear. Was he actually writing out the Ten Commandments so that they could see them? What Was he like um, writing out his response to what they were asking? Like, here's the sentence. I'm going to write it in the dirt. What was he actually writing? And, and, and why was he writing in the dirt? Why was he actually doing it with his finger? See, it wasn't the actual thing Jesus was writing. It was the actually the act of what he was doing here. It wasn't what he was writing. He was what he was doing. Again, Pastor Ray Ortland says, the reason Jesus does this is that the Bible tells us in Exodus 31, 18, the law was written with the finger of God. And that made the law doubly sacred because God himself actually wrote it. And here Jesus is writing with his finger when the law is being debated because he is the true author of the law. He knew how to apply the law in the gospel. Basically, he's saying, hey guys, I know the law. I'm not just Jesus, I'm God. I wrote the law with my finger. And imagine these scribes and Pharisees as they saw Jesus bend down and do this and, and, and they knew the law very well. They knew everything about it. And imagine going through their mind, they're thinking, oh, I get it. Or did they? But they're watching this unfold. And it'll be clear in a moment that Jesus uses this opportunity to show the extent of his forgiveness. But the thing we have to look at first is that the woman was actually guilty, right? The woman was actually guilty. She actually performed the act of adultery. And so she was guilty. Before she could actually be forgiven, she actually had to understand and be aware of her guilt, right? She knew that she was guilty, but even more, imagine the guilt that, that she felt because her sin was exposed to everybody. Imagine the shame that she felt because it wasn't just something that she kept private. It was actually exposed to everybody there. The shame that she actually felt as her community found out about her sin. She desperately needed forgiveness. And the thing is, is we've all been guilty in our lives. And with that guilt, sometimes comes shame, right? Sometimes shame follows that guilt. And sometimes that shame can be crippling. And we don't want anyone to know about our sin in our lives. 
Because see, having our sin exposed is one of our greatest fears. Having people know about my failures and, and my sin and the things that I get wrong, that's a fear of all of us. Who's out there just saying, hey, guys, I want to know, uh, hey, everybody, I want you to see what I did wrong. Can you share my shame here? No, it's natural for us to hide that shame, to fear. What would people think? What would people say? What would people do? And the reality is we may be able to hide the sin from others around us, but ultimately we can't hide it from God. See, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the, the, the glory of God, of, of the standard of holiness that God expects. There's not a person in this room who hasn't fallen. There's not a person in this room who hasn't sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And what do we deserve? Condemnation. And the thing is, is we have to be aware of our sin and our guilt before we can experience forgiveness. See, this woman was aware of her guilt and her sin and was exposed for all to see. I can't imagine the shame that she went through. And, and so we have to understand that in order to have the forgiveness, we actually have to understand that we're guilty of something and be aware of it. Let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus forgives sins by making us aware of our guilt. And Jesus forgives sins by removing all condemnation. In verse 7, we pick up, it says this. And as they continued to ask, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older, older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. See, at this point, the anticipation is killing at them. They want Jesus to make a decision and it's killing them. And so they continue to ask him. And like Jesus, what are you doing? What are you going to do with this? Now remember, he was writing in the sand. So he stands up and, and then he answers them. And I love how he actually puts the ball back in their court. He says this, he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone. Like if anybody in this room is without sin, go ahead. You can throw the stone. Imagine the look on their faces. Remember, they, they knew the law. They're probably like, what? what? Wait a minute. Did he, just, did he just get us? Like, hold on, Jesus. We need to, we need to meet. Like, did he, did he actually? Are we supposed to leave now? Do we have sin? I can remember in college, I, um, I went to a pretty strict college. I won't say the name, but, you know, um, I went there and... Uh, I sinned, and um, they brought me to the dean's office. And so I went up into the dean's office, and I'm up there with, uh, sitting at this table, and there's all these guys in, in uh, you know, suits and ties, and I'm thinking, man, this is pretty official. I don't know if I did that bad, you know. <laughs> but they start telling me all about how I was wrong and, and how I've sinned and all of this. And so, you know, being at a Bible college, I thought everyone knew the Bible, and it was biblical, so I tried to pull this. And, and so I said, I, you know, hey, anyone who has not sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone at me. 
I looked around the room. Not one of them were laughing. Now, I was a rebellious uh, individual at the time and um, disrespectful in a lot of ways. But I remember thinking to myself, like, yeah, I'm going to throw this back in your court, guys. Hey. And it didn't turn out very well for me. Trust me. It didn't, unfortunately. It didn't turn out the same way as the crowd reacted in this. It says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. See, Jesus also knew the law, and so he applies it here. See, he was the only one in the room without sin. He was the only one in the temple without sin. He was the only one able to actually judge this woman. And so he levels the playing field. He knew who was in the crowd that day. He knew the man that was also guilty of adultery was there, and the men who witnessed the adultery were there, and the men who planned and plotted all of this were there. Not one of them, not one of the accusers was free from the the guilt and the weight of sin. So he's basically saying, hey, look at your own life. Do some self-evaluation here before you actually bring this woman to me and say that she's sinned. Have, have you all, are you all free from sin? And it doesn't tell us why the older ones left first. We don't know. Maybe they were older and wiser. Maybe they got it and they said, hey, he's right. We got to go. And they started leaving first. Who knows? Maybe they knew all the sin that they had compiled over the years. I don't know. It's not entirely clear, but it does say that the entire crowd leaves and Jesus stands up and addresses the woman. She's the only one left in the room with him. He's the only one worthy to judge her. And so here comes the verdict, right? He asks her a question that he already knows the answer to as Jesus does often. But he asks her a question here and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She looks around the room and she says, no one, Lord. No, one, no one's here to condemn me. Imagine what was going through her mind as she sat there before Jesus and the entire crowd had left and now she's alone with Jesus and, and she's sitting there knowing I'm guilty, I'm aware of it, and I'm facing my judgment. Imagine what she was thinking. Maybe she was thinking, hey, you know what? Maybe Jesus is just going to stone me. I don't know. What's going to happen in this moment? Maybe she had fear and anxiety and just uncertainty of what was about to happen next, sitting in her shame, sitting in her guilt, understanding that she did wrong. Just imagine what was going through her mind. And then we see Jesus. He said this, neither do I condemn you. Man, what a, Release of pressure there, right? What a weight lifted off. He, he gives her the perfect picture of redemption and forgiveness. He shows this woman compassion and mercy. See, he, he didn't just shrug off the sin. He didn't just say, hey, it doesn't matter that you sinned. Jesus knew that he was actually going to the cross to pay the price for the sin, right? He knew that he was about, actually about to be crucified, See, the woman deserved the punishment, as do each one of us, because we're all humans, we're all sinners. 
And because of that, we deserve God's condemnation, right? But Jesus. Remember that verse that many of us maybe memorized as a child? John 3, 16. What's it say? It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? But then it goes on in verse 17 and it says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. See, He wasn't sent to condemn us. He wasn't sent to condemn those. He wasn't sent to condemn this woman, but to save her. See, because of the sin, humanity stands condemned before God, but Jesus came to remove all condemnation through His substitutionary death on the cross. Man, I, I got this 2001 Dodge Ram farm truck, and... Um, I got to imagine back in 2001, you know, coming right off the line, this thing was crisp, right? It's a 2,500, you know, three-quarter ton. I'm betting back in 2001, it was a nice truck, and and the paint, man, was probably just perfect, right? It's cherry red, and I'm thinking, man, back in 2001, this thing was a beauty. If you looked at it today, you'd be like, whoa. But it's the farm truck, right? See, over the time, driving it, it had like salt and corrosion come up in it and and the body started to rust away and and, and the motor may still be good, but but the body is rusting away and and fading and and it's becoming condemned. And and when I look at it, my kids are embarrassed if I take them to school in it and, and drop them off. They're like, oh my gosh, dad, just drop us at the road. Like, what are you doing? This thing is falling apart. And they shut the doors and the rust goes, right? And it's like, sorry, you know, I'll sweep that up later, right? I was driving down the road the other day and two fender flares just gone, right? And I'm like, well, there goes half my truck. Like, I ain't going back for that. Um, But over time, the rust takes over and the corrosion takes over and it starts to corrode. And and I love looking at old cars when they're restored, right? It's a sweet thing. When somebody fully restores a car and it looks beautiful. But see, in in a similar way, sin has come into us and corrupted every part of us. The sin in our lives has come in and corrupted every part of us and we stand condemned. And every day we live in the brokenness of our own lives, covered in shame. We're covered in rust. But Jesus. See, the same forgiveness that this woman experienced the, that day is the same forgiveness that you and I can experience now, today, every day. See, there's, that's what we call the gospel, the good news. There's forgiveness for all who receive it. I love how Isaiah 53, 5 puts it. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the ta- chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. This gives us a picture of the amazing work of Jesus on our behalf. And because of this work of Jesus, we now 
have this promise that we see in Romans 8.1 where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See, that in Christ there means for those of us who are believers, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Him alone. And so that's what it means to be in Christ. There's no condemnation for us. And today for you, it might mean just that. It might mean that you actually need to make a decision to actually be in Christ Jesus, to have a relationship with Him. There's no condemnation when we come to repent of our sins and place our faith in the work of Jesus. The third thing we see here is that forgiveness renews a dead life. The last part of this. If we look in 11, it says, And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And what does he say after that? Go. And from now on, sin no more. What do these words mean for this woman? Here's someone facing judgment, and Jesus tells her that even he doesn't condemn her, that she can go free. No stoning or judgment, but freedom. He's basically saying, go live your life to the fullest. Just don't sin anymore. This is the picture of true grace. It speaks life back into this woman, right? She's now to go and pursue holiness. See, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses of sins. This is where she was, right? Before Jesus. But because of Jesus' grace and mercy, he releases that bondage from her and tells her to go and sin no more. When we look at that, we can be confused. Was Jesus telling her, you know, you're going to be perfect, don't sin anymore, you're not going to sin, right? No. We'll never achieve that. We're human, right? We always, we're, we're, we're sin nature. What he's saying to her is, don't go back into this sin. Man, I, I've rescued you out of this. Don't, don't just go back to this. Go and now pursue holiness. How many of us have climbed right back into the sin before, Right? the sin that we've actually been rescued from, and all of a sudden we just find ourselves right back in the mud. I love John Piper's comment on the reality of Jesus' word to the woman. He says this, We are called to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin. But pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace is our own, or in our own lives produces hypocrisy and doctrine, doctrinaire cruelty. Jesus came into the world to provide that grace through his cross and, so, and to establish holiness, righteousness, and justice on the foundation of our experience of his grace. So come to him for grace and set your face to sin no more. In other words, even though we're called to be holy, we can't pursue holiness unless we first come before God and accept his grace. We have to come before him first and accept his grace. Think of it this way. You go to the doctor's office and the doctor comes in and tells you, hey, John, um, you have lung cancer. You're going to die. If you don't quit smoking cigarettes, you're going to die, right? All the smoking all your life has, has caught up to you and, and, and now here you are at the end of your life because you've done this. And so if you don't stop, you're going to die. But if you stop, you'll have more life. Seems like an easy decision. Pretty easy decision, right? 
as I process this and I think through this, I should think through this and maybe make some changes in my life and, and maybe fix that part of my life so that I can have a longer life to live. If you look at stats, the National Cancer Institute study found that 42.5% of smokers that were diagnosed with lung cancer stopped smoking and they lived a longer life. Did you catch that? 42.5%. That means that over 50% didn't make the decision that, hey, I need to change what I'm doing. I need to change my life. Over 50%. Pretty wild, huh? Maybe for you kids, like, man, you, you have been doing something wrong and you've been bad all week and, and your mom tells you, hey, guess what? If you're good all day, I'm going to get you a whole gallon of ice cream. And you can have the whole thing tonight. What would you do? You'd be good, right? You'd accept that? I know I would. But here's the thing, guys. All of these things are, those type of things are things that we can make changes, right? We can actually step in and make the change. We have control over it. But the thing is, is that we don't have any control over our sin nature. We don't actually have control to rescue ourselves. We're born with sin. There's nothing that we can do to rescue us. Only Jesus can do that for you. We don't sin no more and then experience grace. Jesus says, come to me all who are broken and weary so that you may experience my grace and then go pursue holiness. It's only after you've experienced God's grace that you can actually go out and pursue holiness. It's nothing about us, but it's all about him. In the same way that this woman experienced forgiveness and God's grace, we can all experience that same grace and forgiveness today. Jesus gives us the perfect picture of grace here. There's a few ways that we can apply this, right? When we look at this picture, when we look at this story of what Jesus did with this woman, there's a, there's a few ways that we can actually apply this. One of which for some of you, you might need to extend forgiveness. You might need to be the one that actually says, hey, uh, I know somebody apologized. I just haven't I've got this bitterness in my heart and I haven't extended forgiveness to, to maybe a coworker, a friend, or, or maybe it's someone in your life, your wife, your husband, and, and I just need to actually move in this way and say, hey, I forgive you and then forgive them. Maybe it's something that's happened in your past with your dad or your mom or somebody in your life and, and you just need to actually come to the point of Forgiveness, even if they haven't said they're sorry. Maybe for you today, you actually need to ask for forgiveness. You actually need to be the one that says, hey, I'm going to go to this person because I know I've done them wrong and I'm in the wrong, so I need to go and ask for forgiveness. Maybe that's you today. Maybe for some of you in here, you might be walking in shame. There's sin in your life. And you need to be like this woman who, who comes before the cross, lays it at the foot of Jesus, and says, I'm, I'm not willing to do this anymore. 
I'm not going to live in this sin anymore. I'm not going to sit in this mud anymore. I'm actually coming to, to Jesus who offers forgiveness. And then I want to go and pursue holiness. And for today, you just need to say, hey, there's sin in my life and I need to expose it and bring it to God and lay it at the foot of the cross of Jesus and say, I'm done with it. I'm not living the way I should. And maybe for you today, that is you who actually needs to start a relationship with Jesus and understand the forgiveness that he offers to you. Maybe you are a believer and you still are in sin and you need to come. Whatever that looks like for you today, I want to, I want to take a moment to just reflect on this. Because I believe that, that God can do business in our heart. I, I believe we all need forgiveness and we all need to extend forgiveness. But maybe there's something in your life today you just need to talk to God. I'm down front. If you want to come pray with me, if you want to come talk to me about something, I'm down here. But I want to take a moment and Tasha's going to play. And I just want you all to bow your heads and pray. And I just want you to sit in this moment and reflect on what God has today for you. In the forgiveness that he's offered you. Maybe just thank him for that forgiveness. Maybe just go to God and, and say, hey, I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. But let's take a minute and reflect on that and then I'll pray. Lord God, Lord, I come before you humble in need of forgiveness myself. Lord, I'm a failure. But God, you step in and make me new. And so Lord, I, I, I speak the name of Jesus over your people today. Lord God, for the one that doesn't know you in this room, I pray that, God, you would speak to them. Help them understand what it means to have a relationship with them. Lord, for the one that is carrying shame and guilt and needs to do business with you to release that sin and lay it at the foot of the cross. God, for all of us who need forgiveness, Lord, would you just move in a mighty way. God, we just want to be faithful and obedient to what you've called us to. So Lord, I pray that each one of us as believers would pursue holiness. That we would constantly be pursuing holiness. Thank you for this beautiful picture of forgiveness. Father God, we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.